Hi, and welcome to episode 79 of Talking with Painters, the podcast where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. My name's Maria Stolger, and my guest today is Catherine Longhurst. During the Cold War, the Soviet bloc and the West were separated in various ways, but probably none so dramatically as the Berlin Wall, which separated what were East and West Germans for 28 years. Catherine Longhurst was born on the eastern side of that wall and experienced firsthand life as it was behind the Iron Curtain, and it'd be a life that would influence the direction of her work as an artist many years later. A figurative painter and a feminist, her work often parodies the communist propaganda art which you would see in the streets in East Berlin. But instead of images of triumphant soldiers and workers, she would depict strong, defiant women using military imagery and female sexuality to brilliant effect. She also paints larger-than-life head-and-shoulder paintings from the intense portrayals of children going through tough times to her current incredible work focusing on female refugees which were lining the walls of her studio when I met her and which you'll see on the YouTube video which will be going online in mid-November. Catherine moved to Australia almost 20 years ago after meeting her Australian husband and became a full-time artist in the early 2000s after a career in the corporate world. She's exhibited in over 15 solo shows, has been a finalist in the Archibald, Portia Geach, Doug Moran and many other prizes, and her work is held in major collections in Australia and overseas. All the works we talk about can be found on the website talkingwithpainters.com. We started our conversation with Catherine recalling her childhood in East Germany, and I asked her what she remembers of access to popular culture in those days. Everything was censored. So what we would read, watch on television, what we would hear on radio, the the books we had access to uh, in bookshops and in libraries was all censored. So because I was living in Berlin, which was within radio range of West Berlin, we could actually receive West German radio stations and West oh. German um, television stations so we we would secretly watch that um, but so that, you weren't allowed to you went you weren't allowed to you wouldn't talk about it like in if you were at school you would hush hush you know um, whisper about it with your friends did you watch the latest episode of Dallas last <laughs> night you know but you would definitely not tell the teachers because you would get into trouble and then they would get a you know visit from the school principal you know at home and then the oh. party people would get involved and so would your parents tell you not to tell anybody yeah, yeah. like my I mean my mum um you know this, this is really funny like now when I'm thinking about it it's like wow this was so crazy like on the outside mum was, you know, she was a member of the Communist Party and she would go, you know, to the party meetings and, and all of that. So on the outside, we looked like, you know, the perfect sort of obedient family. But um, behind, you know, closed doors, she would sort of, you know, try and scheme our way out of the country. And, and, and she so she would... Um, often go and, and liaise with Westerners. So she would go to places where she would meet Westerners. Like uh, there were certain nightclubs and bars in Berlin where um, sort of construction workers from, from Scandinavian countries, for example, would, would go and frequent. And so she would go there. And, and uh, um, this was obviously after she divorced my, my dad. Um, and she would meet people from, from the West. And uh, so she ended up um, in a relationship with... Um, with a Swede, and applied to get married, and it oh, took. right. Yeah. So, so, so mm. we went. We went that way. We left the country that way. Uh, so we didn't build a balloon or, or <laughs> dug a tunnel <laughs> under the wall or anything like that. So, but, so, so we were allowed to do that. That was a way you could you could leave. Uh, yeah, but it was very very difficult so it it took them five years for the application to go through and it got rejected and rejected and rejected and they just kept trying and retrying mm. and in that meantime life was made hell for the people 
uh, applying because all of a sudden you became an enemy of the state. And so you were under Stasi surveillance because you had connections with the West and your neighbours started reporting on you, your friends would report on you. So so the Stasi, when when the wall came down, she actually opened her files uh, in the archives and, uh, you know, read the full report on her and and realised that, you know, a lot of close friends and and neighbours and so forth had been handing information into, you know, they were recording Mm. what type of cars arrived at, you know, the house and how long people were staying in our apartment and um, stuff like that. What what benefit do those people get? Do they get any benefit? Well, you were either with the Stasi or you were blacklisted as well. So, Mm. like, people often didn't really have an option. And I mean, that's that's the thing with a police state, with a complete surveillance state, is that uh, you know that you have no freedom. Like every, every step you take is being recorded. Every because they 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 really wanted to control the lives of their people so that mm. they wouldn't rebel against the system. Well, you would have been quite young, were you? Yeah. Bit, so so mm. what what I'm saying is like that. Uh, we as children were not aware of any of this mm. and I think mum always tried to protect us um, in that sense that the, the less she would tell us, the, the better for us because we couldn't accidentally say something wrong and yeah. endanger us or uh, get us into trouble. But mm. um, So you were aware of a whole world out there yeah, but it was a very skewed world. I mean, we the snippets of the West we, we would get was from, you know, American television. So I thought, mm. you know, the West would be something like Dynasty or, <laughs> you know, Dallas or... You know. But was that appealing or was that sort of considered decadent? I mean, I'm not saying if Dynasty or Dallas is... <laughs> I mean, that is a bit of a weird world to live in. <laughs> J.R. Ewing. <laughs> no, of course it was appealing. Like, we um, we were desperate to, to find out what the West was like and just access to products and, and fashion and especially mm. as a young teenager, you know, wanting uh, cosmetics and, and beautiful clothes and mm. that's all you live for. Um, and ha- so with clothing, um, would, w- was there a very limited range as to what oh, you yeah. could buy? And, and you see, this is, this is the thing with um, a free market economy versus a plan economy. Um, in a plan economy, the government decides what gets produced and it's all centrally planned. So government says we will build 20,000 cars this year because that's, you know, what we foresee. So they, it's it's never driven by demand. It's always driven by what the government says we need to, to produce as a country, what is good for the country. So there was always a lack of something. Mm. Um, you know, there was a 10-year waiting list for a car, for example. Mm. Um, apartments. So everyone was guaranteed you know, an apartment, but it was often not big enough, not sufficient. And so there was like this this black market economy happening. I remember when my dad had been waiting his 10 years, you know, to get his car and it was like a, a Russian make. Uh, the, the brand, I think it was called Saporosh. And it was um, lemon yellow, I remember it. And and it was the proudest day in his life when that car arrived and then he <laughs> took it for a tour around the block and we were just like, wow. Yeah, <laughs> you <know>? right. <laughs> so, it, so you, but you left home, you left East Germany before the wall came down. So Yeah, you, so at the time, you know, we wouldn't, like no one would have known that what was around the corner because, you know, we were told that the wall was going to last another thousand years, yeah, you know. Yeah. So it was just incredible the way it happened and that it happened peacefully. Um, yeah, just incredible what, mm. what, you know. Well, it happened about two years after you left. Two, yeah, it? two years after. That must after. have been very strange for you. Yeah, I watched it on television when I was you know, in Sweden, and I remember just 
sitting crying, crying, crying. I was so overwhelmed by emotion because um, it, you know, it changed lives. It split families. It had devastating effects on on so many people. And you had forty years of indoctrination and forty years of um, people living completely separate lives mm. that um, a lot of people have never recovered from. No, I can um, imagine that. I, I think a lot of East Germans from that generation suffer from a loss of identity, a loss of, um, you know, all of a sudden their, their country doesn't exist anymore. And there's like uh, now uh, there's a certain amount of nostalgia um, about that time and um, and what you know brought people together as well because you know if you live in a very suppressive regime there's a lot of bonding there's a lot of camaraderie Mm. amongst people Mm. Um, I didn't I didn't have an unhappy childhood people looked after each other some you know someone in the house would always feed all the kids and Mm. you know if someone came home late from work because as I said earlier there there was no housewives like women worked yeah in in East Germany so so, so, so there wasn't a feeling of a lack of anything. Um, not, not because I lived in the capital city. I, I guess um, it was sort of the shops were always stocked because Westerners would travel through Berlin, mm. and I think it was a different story, regional or out in the country. But in Berlin, we we didn't lack food. We lack choice. If you had grandparents, you were very lucky because grandparents could travel because, you know, East Germany didn't really care if they lost a couple of retirees <laughs> over, you know, the West. So, um, Is so, that right? So the retirees could travel and they got a daily allowance of like $10 or something like that. Um, so oh. they would go over and get a couple of luxury items. They would get, you know, some some yogurts or some chocolates or, you know. Oh, so um, you had a glimpse into mm-hmm, to things. Oh, mm-hmm. isn't that interesting? Yeah. But what, what so what memories do you have um, of, of exposure to art when you were a child? Well, in, um, so I've always been interested in art, always painted, always drawn. And I was lucky. I had a really good art teacher at the time who who, who pushed me to apply for things, and um, and I was singled out. You know, I entered some competitions, and I was, you know, there. At the time, we'd already put through our applications, so the school decided not to put me into a specialist arts school or arts program because it would have been a waste on on me. But I got to go. Um, to life drawing classes. So when I was 14, I started, you know, doing like life drawing with, um, you know, a local artist group. And I had a fantastic teacher there, Manfred Schwarz, who was just fabulous. He he really laid the the foundation for me to pursue art. In what way? What you mean as in sort of teaching about life drawing itself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and also because he was a practising artist, and which was very uncommon in East Germany. Because uh, once again, plan economy, you couldn't really choose your profession. We had counselling, we had career counselling from, from year one in school. So every year they would send a career counsellor in and they, you had to write down your aspirations, what you wanted to become, and then you got coached. So, for example, I, every year I wrote down, I want to be a practising artist, I want to be, you know, I want to work in with graphic design, I want to work with painting, mm. and every year I got counselled. Yeah, well, there is not enough space for, you know, we don't have enough um, education spots in that field so you might need to choose like product design or industrial design or you right. know so they were trying to, to trying push to me you. into that area you know looking back at my childhood now was uh, you know what, what springs to mind mostly is is that the exposure to to only figurative work so because a lot of people ask me like how did you end up becoming a figurative painter and I think a lot of that has to do with 
me not being exposed to anything else when I grew up because the the art we would get to see so we went to school excursion at the Palace of the Republic who was this this massive arts and culture center in the in the middle of the city that had you know art museums and several theaters and um, cinemas and a bowling alley and oh. restaurants like I don't know 10 restaurants or something and um, but also it had an incredible permanent collection of socialist realist works mm. a lot of them commissioned so all the big east german painters would create a piece to a theme and i think the theme was something like when when communists dream um so it was all very political the, the works were very political and it was all mm. about you know the the uh, communist ideology and like um, free, the freedom of the proletariat and that sort of thing? Yes, or? yes, exactly. So this is what I grew up with, with, like looking at figurative works of, you know, farmers and war factory workers mm. and, and soldiers. And they were beautifully painted. I mean, a lot of that was in the tradition of, um, you know, the, the, the Russian painters. Well, I mean, often you reference... Um what's known as communist propaganda art, which is those sort of posters, you know, the dramatic sort of posters. Mm-hmm. Was that something you would have seen much when you were there or was that was that during that period when you were living there? Yeah, all the time. It was such a huge part of our bringing because, you know, we were doing um, 1st of May demonstrations and there would be, uh, you know, political posters up all over town. Uh, even our school books were full of propaganda. So we, we learned to to count and doing maths with, with tanks and soldiers. So <laughs> there were, like, uh, tanks and soldiers in our school books. Wow. And so uh, when we learned to read, the stories would be about, you know, the 1st of May demonstrations or would be about, you know... Um, Pete's older brother who's in the army is coming to school and talk about Mm. how we have to defend the peace and you know our uh, brothers and friends the Soviet Union is you know so that was sort of the thematic in the the little snippets of um, you know stories that we were learning to read so it it was all through our lives so for me now using military outfits and military symbolism comes quite natural Mm. uh, in in my works because they're attributes of of power and and uh, strength and uh so mm. I want to talk about that a little bit for a bit more detail further on because um we especially the yeah. use of women in those in those yeah, paintings because yeah, yeah. it's amazing. But <laughs> I want to go back to Australia when you first got to Australia because I I want to find out how you became an artist. Because mm. we talk about you coming to Australia and doing you know your business degree. Mm. But how did you get into art? Okay. Um, I think with, with anything in life, sometimes you have to become really, really miserable in order for you to make a change. So, I mean, I continued painting and drawing throughout my whole life. Just on your own, you mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and I did, you know, short courses and weekend, you know, and signed up to art classes and, and always, always drawn and, and painted. But I never really thought I could do it as a job or as a, as a living. And... Uh, and then I was in a job um, where I was, like, very, very unhappy to the point where I was making myself physically sick. So I would have migraines every weekend. I would dry reach in the car every morning going to work because I was anticipating, you know, um, getting to work and, and having to deal with cranky customers and with. Uh, stuff I couldn't control it it was um yeah really taking its toll on on me mentally and, and and physically and I had approached my boss and I said um I, I really would love to work part-time because I want to paint and um and I think they were considering it and 
in the end, it just somehow didn't work out, and I, I just took the plunge and and said, okay, this is it. I'm, you know, I'm leaving the corporate world, and I cried for about two weeks, and I was absolutely terrified. But I haven't looked back. So I haven't gone the traditional way, you know, going through art school and then sort of starting out in the gallery mm. world. I went sort of the, the back door. We were talking earlier about uh, using models mm-hmm. um, because there's a whole series of works that you've done over the years where we're talking about that um, that sort of propaganda art and, mm. and they're much more dynamic sort of paintings where the women are in different poses mm. and there and there's also this this element of that military style like maybe even the clothing and accessories mm. versus a very sexual sort of side mm. where they might have lingerie showing or like very like makeup and red lipstick and all that sort yeah, of thing yeah how did you how did you first come across, I mean is that is that how it started when you started doing those sort of works when you were referencing to the, that sort of art did it start in that way um, well, it's sort of, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, that I went through a whole period of uh, painting girls in pretty outfits yeah, and, yeah. you know, surrounded by flowers and pretty fabrics and all of that because uh, I think that's something that, that I just had to get out of my system coming from the East and being denied that growing up the the uh, luxury and, and beautiful dresses and and all of that so it, it took me a while before I really really embraced my my heritage and before I felt comfortable enough to to mock or, or to make satire out of my heritage as well because mm. you know Obviously, the way I paint, um, you know, using the, the, the communist imagery now would be quite offensive to Well, that's of, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't imagine you doing that in 1991, for example. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but now, you know, I can, I can mock this, yeah. this imagery without getting into trouble, without ending up in, in jail or being, you know, blacklisted <laughs> or, you know, having the Stasi knock at my door. Well, also to, for your own self, not feeling as though you've rejected all of that. In a way, because yeah, it's exactly. like rejecting your childhood or something. Exactly. So now I can embrace it and yeah. celebrate it, yeah. and, and sort of fill it with my own agenda, which is, of course, you know, portraying women as as very powerful and capable and, yeah. and a major player in in our society. And um, well, all those women, they've got attitude. Oh yeah, that's the interesting thing about it. They've got expressions like they're not sitting there smiling, and or, <laughs> or even they're not passive. No, I find no, um, which is the exciting thing about it. And there, and you don't see that that often, you know. Well, I think you know, there's, um, it's it's really fun because I think people are yearning for this type of imagery. I, I get beautiful, beautiful feedback from, from women out there who, who are going like, yeah, I can relate to that, you know, this, mm. this is how I want to be, you know. It's strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Like I, I had, um, you know, CEOs of, of uh, you know, companies and, um, you know, CEO of a charity putting, you know, one of my paintings in their office to remind themselves like, yes, we can do this, we can yeah. Get out there and That's battle, right. and, and it, well, it's sort of like a, almost like a war cry for for women to be out and loud and proud, and you know, just definitely. Well, doing actually, their the, thing. It's, it's funny because the very the first time I became aware of your work was in the Porsche Geach in twenty eleven. Wow. And um, it was that port self-portrait you did. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you remember that? When you were standing, it's a full-length self-portrait, almost life-size, I would say, ah. and you're carrying a flag yeah. in one hand that's waving in the wind. A huge flag is waving behind you yeah. that you're carrying, and in your other hand you've got like a pickaxe yeah. on your shoulder. So yeah. it's very, very much referencing that propaganda art. Yeah. And you are f- in, it's a very stormy sky behind you, and you are looking ahead of you with great confidence and strength and power. That's so interesting because that portrait really was the turning point. 
Was uh, it? That was the first work where I sort of broke with, you know, the, you know, pretty sort of uh, decorative work I, w I was doing. And uh, what made you think of doing that one? Or was it was it always? I mean, it's interesting. It was a self portrait too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, that that was. I really wanted to paint something honest, and and at the same time, have a bit of fun with my past, and and paint it as a bit of a satirical piece on you know here I am on the barricades and yeah. sort of looking ahead and and very theatrical. And it was a total turning point because that that portrait received um, so much acclaim. And I remember uh, John McDonald mentioning me in his review of the portrait that that year, and and I was just like, oh crap, he noticed me, you know. <laughs> I think a lot of people noticed you. Um, I think a lot of, yeah, I noticed it. I never forget <laughs> because it was so different to anything else as well. You know this. This amazing figure, and oh. it also had that what you were talking about before, where you're looking, up, the viewer is looking up towards the yes, person, yes, and so that gives it that amazing stature and yeah. and, and authority, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and strength. Oh, that's and so I, funny. Yeah. Oh, and I can see why CEOs would love to put that sort of thing <laughs> in their boardroom. But but that honestly, that, that portrait was sort of the the first step out into you know, really being authentic about mm. who, I, who I was and what I wanted to say and uh, not painting for, you know, what I thought people wanted but painting for what I really wanted to paint and what mm. I wanted to say. Um, and out of that came like a whole whole series of works with um, very much, you know, my childhood and, and, and the um, propaganda works um, and that led to uh, the painting I did of Grenade Girl that ended oh, up in the yeah, Sawman. In the Sawman, yeah, that's fantastic uh, painting. And, um, so, so yeah. that that all came out of out of right. that first self portrait, that and I that did. had that aviator sort of theme to it mm. as well, because you've used a lot of of those. Um, well, she had an aviator hat on, basically. Mm. In that, so the Grenade Girl is a painting of a of a woman who's basically holding a grenade. She's she's uh, she's about to throw it, and it's like a really dynamic, powerful pose. And she's got her her, her um, shirt flying open, exposing her red bra, and she's just really strong, powerful, very strong, very feminine at the same time. Yeah, and so, a very and a, a very strong expression, like with a great attitude. Yeah, yeah, like, and yeah. that's the, this is like one of my favorite models that I'm still working with today. Um, she was my model for Liberty on the on the barricades. Oh, okay. Yeah, Which is going to be in the video. So we just shot a video. So <laughs> go to the video and have a look at that. Yes, yes. Um, and because, so this this model, Melusine, um, look her up, she's awesome. She is not afraid she, of being expressive with her face. Mm. So, you know, a, lo a lot of models you get in, they're, they're just, you know, trying very hard to look pretty or, mm. or you know, look beautiful. Whereas Melusine is um, she's all about getting into character yeah. and, and playing out the, you know, she's very good at angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> well, it must help when you've got um, accessories and, you know, costume. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, those, you, those, so do you spend a bit of time accessing those sort of or finding those? Oh, my those God, things? I haven't shown you my collection, but, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've spent so much money on military gear and helmets and outfits and pilot suits and parachutes and oh my they god they look amazing <laughs> but they send such a good mess a strong message as well well but i love dressing women in these outfits because what we're usually exposed to is you know like the strong male hero with his you know with his guns and his grenades and his Helmets and and having a woman in in that outfit, it just changes everything. You know the whole dynamics, the whole. Um, oh, definitely. You know, I just love it. 
really love well, it. Well, it's it's that incongruity, that sort of um, contradiction, you know, yeah. of what a woman is supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not, you know, obviously you're not glorifying, you know, <laughs> war or anything. Well, it's it's so it's so funny because a lot of people, I do get a lot of followers that are gun lovers, and it's it's really funny because. You know, it, because that's what—that's not what my work is about. You no, know, glorifying weaponry. Right. I'm using that as um, a metaphor for, you know, power and and, and strength and and uh, you know, freedom of expression. And um, so, how do you? So, what do they write things on Instagram or something? Yeah, they yeah they they comment and they like and. Um, you know, or retweet or repost. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And then, do you mind about that being associated? Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. Like I, you know, uh, I think that's the problem in this day and age that we're so polarized that we can't talk to, you know, people outside our own ideology or our own belief system. That that we distance ourselves further and further from, from everyone else. And I think it's so healthy for anyone to have friends outside mm-hmm. their... Um, Political views. Or yes, yes, very much so. It is refreshing to hear people of different viewpoints politically mm. having mm. a civil discussion. Yes. That is yes. so wonderful. I've found and, and some... I, and I have yeah. a couple of people in my life that, that have completely different political views to me and that I'm getting along with so well and that are so respectful and that are so beautiful and fun and um, that I appreciate in my life. So I think, you know, it's, it's really, really important to... to to, to build these bridges and, and mm. to, you know, not reject people and, and hear them out because, you know, they all have valid points of view. Well, and also it's a reasonably recent phenomenon mm. that people would be like that your political views would cause you to be friends or not with somebody. That's not that's not when I was growing up or even in my 20s well, or whatever. It's, it's not been that foreign for me growing up in East <laughs> Germany. So <laughs> that's true, actually, because that's very like, true. We, we had, um, you know, the, the communist media, the East German media would paint uh, Westerners as monsters you know so we always thought like the americans were the worst people on the planet and they were evil and they were Mm. so bad Mm. so i and then you know coming out to to the west and and then all of a sudden you you speak to people and go like no they're they're not bad people you know and yeah they might have a different view and then all of a sudden you you find out that your history books well, very different to the history books in the West. And, and, you know, you find out that Stalin, who was hailed as this hero and beautiful person, killed millions of people. Like, and you go like, whoa, I didn't know that. Mm. Like, mm. who can you trust? Who can you believe? Like, who, I, like, for me, it was, and, and like, for me, it caused a lot of trust issues to the point where I'm still today find it really hard to commit to any opinion straight away. I, I always like to sit on the fence. I would, I will not sort of, you know, join in and go like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. because I'm, I just need to see the facts first. I need mm, to, you know, might not have the full picture. Yeah, exactly. And I need to know what, so where's that information coming from and, and who's behind it and who's, mm. you know, what's your agenda and what's your motive. And mm. um, so, yeah, it's, and yeah, it made, you know, makes you very cynical. And very oh, yeah, I could, un- <laughs> I could believe that. I could understand that. And actually, I think a lot of people feel like that now. Because mm. you never quite the whole fake news thing and everything, you just don't quite know what you can believe yeah. anymore. You know. Yeah. Just on a slightly different topic, I, the other thing that interests me about you is that you've come from, you know, you've come from um, Europe, 
but you've you've uh, you've established yourself here as a leader and a mentor to a lot of people. You were you vice president in the Portrait Artists Australia, and you founded Project Five Hundred Four, which is a um, group of artists, a studio of artists who um, have just you know I mean they're amazing amazing artists in that group, mm. uh, including two two um, of my podcast guests, Nick Stathopoulos and Michael Sims. Is that, do you think, in your, just your nature or do you think it's from become, coming from the background that you did that you find that you can do anything? <laughs> <laughs> I think I just love people. Um, I love, that's the, the best feeling is when you can connect to people that you know would really like each other and, and you put them together and then you see something magical happen when they work together. Mm. Uh, that's that's what I love. Um, I'm not very patient in running stuff, but I'm, I'm, I get really excited setting things up. So, mm. you know, a lot of... Um, so I founded an artist co-op on the northern beaches many, many, many years ago and I'm pretty sure it's still running. Oh, really? Um, so you just find people that you think would work well together and you'd connect them. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Set things up for yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's from your business background that you can see these opportunities and sort of take them up? Yeah, maybe. But but now I can be really relaxed about it because I, I'm not part of that world anymore. And, and mm. um, now it's actually fun hanging out with corporate people because I know that at the end of the day I can go back to my studio I don't have to you know yeah, yeah. stay in the office you yeah, know? Yeah. um well talking about um um portrait artists Australia yeah uh, you're one of the um portraitists on in that organization yeah. and that and people can go there to commission portraits what um how do you feel about commissions do you do many um <laughs> I, I've done quite a few in my life, but I honestly don't have time for commissions anymore. So, Do they take longer than... They oh. do take longer because you obviously have to accommodate for um, the sitters to come in for, you know, the back and forth with... with uh, uh, with the sitters, um, you, you have to do a lot of prep work. There's, you know, you have to do sketches beforehand, so they have to then sign off on um, your sketches because you can't start a work in the halfway through. You know, they go like, oh, but that's not what we wanted. Mm, uh, mm. I find commissions really hard um, because, you know, it's great when people see your work and they love it, but. I cannot look into someone else's brain and see what they love. And mm. quite often, I mean, I've had some amazing commissions where people just went like, I don't care. It's your thing. You do whatever you do will be great. Uh, and I love that. When they give you yeah. full freedom of, of, you know, what you want to do and they just love the result. But then there are certain people that just want to control every aspect of it. Yeah. And, and that's really tricky. That's really hard. And do you accommodate that? I mean, do you, does it come to no. a point where you can't? Yeah. At, at this point, I only like the only commissions I do. I they are negotiated by my gallery, so I don't even have to deal with people. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they're doing a great job. They do all the back and forth. They do all the oh, negotiating. So you get to a certain point, then you they they show it yeah. to them. You don't have to. Do. Actually, you know what? That also protects you because if you can, if you have some contact negative contact you might not be able to finish it mm. because it, you just get this block about it yeah yeah that has happened <laughs> we've <laughs> like returned the down payment and said like i can't do it yeah Sorry. yeah <laughs> i can understand so would you ever abandon something i've noticed on instagram oh you my show... god oh my god i've abandoned so many paintings there's a graveyard of paintings <laughs> in my i mean you saw my storage um <laughs> Um, closet with, with my stock room yeah. um, there's a lot of abandoned work in there. Is there? Yes, a lot of work I've painted over. I actually did an entire exhibition. I was quite cash strapped at the time. I did an entire exhibition on recycled canvases. They're all um, 
quite textural because there's other paintings underneath. Oh, yeah. So if you bought any painting at a certain time uh, from a certain exhibition, you will have like two or three paintings underneath. <laughs> oh, right. Of ones that didn't work and you just yes. keep going over it. Sometimes that, that's really good, though. But it was so funny because there was this one painting um, I sold last year at an exhibition up in Queensland um, that everyone just loved because it had like this really built up texture and it, uh, I think the gallery director ended up buying it because like she just like, no, no one else can have it. Um, I want it. And, uh, and, and they're like, can you make more of these? I'm like, no, because this is the result of, I don't know how many failed paintings underneath. The, the texture is built up because of all these failure. I cannot recreate that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, you know, I just keep working over and over. And then it was just really, had that feeling of sort of like uh, brickwork that's been painted over like many, many times. And it's, yeah, it was like... It's got a history to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't replicate that, that's for sure. Actually, talking about something that... Um, Something sort of different. Um, you, that, that triptych that we were talking about downstairs mm-hmm. called Ode to Feminism, um, which was, sh- was shown at uh, Nanda Hobbs mm. in the last year or so, I think it was. Uh, that was a very ambitious work and um, hopefully that will make its way into the video that we've shot. Um, can you tell me a bit about that? How did that start off? <laughs> um, like, this is why I love Ralph so much. Um, like... He always comes with these crazy ideas and he says, like, we are ready for a major work. You know, I think <laughs> next step on your, um, you know, to-do list will be, you know, a major collection or major work. I'm um, like, yep, no problems. I'll create a major work. And it took me months and months and months um, to actually get to the point, you know, there was so much prep work, there was like working with the concept. I yeah. um I should just describe it quickly. It's yeah, like three it's like three it, it's three um three panels. panels. Each panel is one eighty by one eighty, so it's like five and a half meters in um in length. Uh, and then obviously 180 high. Yeah. Um, On the left panel, there's like a, a falling um, sort of aviator, a woman. It's mm-hmm. in that propaganda style. And there's, there's jets um, flying across, shooting tampons. And the centre panel is is based on uh, Delacroix's... Uh, um, Liberty on the barricades, or the, the French Revolution piece. And then on the right-hand pan- panel, we've got a female astronaut um, and a disassembled tank. And then in the middle, there's like a giant vibrator as well. Yeah. So it's a really fun piece. It's a really, really fun piece, really yeah. crazy. And I ended up painting a study for it first because I didn't just didn't dare to go large straight away because I had no idea yeah. if it would work. Yeah. Because, um, you know, it, it took me several months to, to paint it. And then... Um, yeah, when I when I brought the study in, it's just like the the response was just like, whoa, that's a bit, you know. <laughs> not sure what it is going to work, but it did. It did. Yeah. It was like one of my most successful pieces. It ended up in um, this massive collection in the Bennett collection over in the US. The the one of the biggest um, collection of female uh, figurative painters. Oh, wow. Um, oh, that's good it ended up there. Well, I think it's great from a feminist perspective, that painting. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see yourself as a feminist? Absolutely. And it's important to portray women in a very in a positive way? Uh, I think, you know, the, the term feminist has got, gotten such a bad rap. Um, you know, and I, I think a lot of people don't really know what it stands for, what it means... But, you know, I, I totally believe that, that we should be working towards a future where women can be an equal participant in, in society in, in all ways. I think we, we would be a much richer, better society if women were given the same opportunities to, to participate. We, we, you know, we have important stories to tell. We have important things to say. Mm. All of history has been told through immense perspective all of art history has been told through immense yeah. lens and we're missing out we're missing out on on so much by not letting women talk yeah, by not right. showing women's art yeah. you know 
Now, also, what do you do? You find um, as far as your routine goes, do you get? Uh, well, do you have a routine? And also, do you find it easy to get started in your? Um... That's a dog. <laughs> oh, Roxy! <laughs> Snorting. Oh, she's little Staffy. She's so gorgeous. <laughs> She hangs around with you in the studio. Yeah, she? yeah. She keeps me. Uh, she keeps me on track. It's it's so good because <laughs> without her, I wouldn't have breaks. So every now and then, she comes up and goes like, "Come on, pet me, pet me." Um, oh, she's so cute. As to routine, I think um, once again, I I did a stint in in telemarketing and in sales, and I got a lot of. Um, tools and techniques to because when when you're in sales it is really really hard to get started to make that first phone call of the day um, to make an appointment with a client to go and see them it procrastination procrastination mm. and it's the same thing when you when you paint you in the studio and you do everything else first you go and clean the kitchen is so clean and <laughs> then you do a bit of vacuuming and then you need to put on another lot of washing so i'm using the same techniques as i used in business to get me started in the morning it's um it's a really good book it's called mm. Eat That Frog. Oh, yes, I've heard of that too. You've heard of yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's very frog, salesy. Yeah. It's very corporate yeah. speak. But the message from it is like if you do the hardest, most difficult thing first thing in the morning, that's the worst part of the day gone and everything else is going to be easy. Mm. Um, so, so will you think about that the day before and think I'm going to start with that? Or just when you come no, in the studio? No, it's when you, you come like, into the studio. You just have to force yourself. Those first 15 minutes, it's pure willpower. It's really you have to force yourself to stay and to to just push through that, that oh, I can't do this, can't do this, you know. And mm. once you, you reach past those first 15 minutes, breathe easy you you get into it you get into the flow it's just you know it's just the the getting started and that's what I think a lot of artists um struggle definitely the procrastination Mm. that you know just getting into it and then you might do a couple brushes and then you walk away again Mm. it's it's just like pushing through those like first so it's sheer discipline willpower it also depends on you know the how you how you work I mean I know artists that the the entire day, like for example, uh, there's this abstract painter I know. The entire day, he cannot listen to music. He cannot get distracted because every brushstroke is this conscious like decision of you know I'm you know of mark making. Whereas you know with figurative work, I pretty much done my creative sort of I've used all my brain power when I came up with the, the subject matter when I've uh, you know came up with the concept when I were when I'm working with my models when I'm uh, designing the layout when I come up with the composition once I sit down at the easel I know what I'm doing mm. I, I don't have to make that many big de- I'm still making small decisions I'm mm. making decisions mm. on what colors to use because every time I paint it's a different color scheme every mm. time. I still make decisions on, on you know, uh, will I blend these or will I go over with layering or, you know. Um, but the big decisions I don't mm. have to So you're not going to be, yeah, anymore. the composition or something or you're not going to have yeah. to. Yeah. So, so yeah. I guess it's, you know, different for, for every artist. But, like, for me, it's um, I, I get into design when... when I work and I, I, I quite often have enough brain space available that I can listen to podcasts and I can, <laughs> I can listen to music mm. and um, radio. Mm. Well, so. it's pretty, it'd be pretty hard to sort of be um, focused to that degree all day. <laughs> I suppose you could only do it for three or four hours or something. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah. And, um, yeah, lastly, can I ask you about social media? <laughs> <laughs> 
Are you on? You're definitely on Instagram. I know. Are you on mm-hmm. f- your Facebook as well? Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you spend much time on social media? How do you think mm. about it a lot? Do you like it? Do you hate it? I think it's like with everyone's a love-hate relationship. <laughs> I mean, I do love it um, because you reach this enormous audience on social media and you have these really one-on-one sort of conversations with people that you would normally not reach. And yeah, people can true. ask you a question, you know, um, directly. I must say I haven't had many negative experiences on social media. You'd sort of think, you know, with the type of work I do that I would get a lot of hate, but I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, have not, you know, there's, there's been a couple of people that have sort of made comments, but they've been very respectful, mm. very respectful. Yeah, I find that too, the art community generally. Yeah. It's pretty uh, pleasant place to be, mm. you know. Mm. And it's been like mostly... Um, positive sort of interaction. Uh, I find Instagram is a, is a great place for, for artists because it is so visual. Mm. And um, when I'm on Facebook, I find I, I quite often get off feeling a bit angry or, or because it is very can often be very political and it can mm. often be mm. very negative. Whereas on Instagram, I look at pretty paintings and I get off yeah. and I feel like, yay, I'm inspired. <laughs> you know, I can go, I can get to work now. Catherine, thank you so much for yeah. having me here today. It's yeah, been just such a pleasure talking me. to you. Oh, likewise, likewise. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Catherine Longhurst's life and work. What an inspirational artist. If you go to the website, you can see details of upcoming exhibitions she's involved in. Uh, Her next solo show is with Flinders Lane Gallery in 2020, and she's represented in Sydney by Nanda Hobbs and in Queensland by Gallery One. If you're enjoying the podcast and haven't done it already, it'd be great if you could rate and review on iTunes, which is the best way you can support the podcast. And as you probably know, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's free, uh, as is the YouTube channel, um, where there are over 90 videos of podcast guests, mostly in their studios. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. this series of paintings that you're doing, mm. which are of um, refugees, yes. basically. Yep. I think by taking individual people and giving them a face and, you know, highlighting their individual story, what I'm hoping is that people can start relating to them mm. then it doesn't become them versus us yeah that they go like you know what that's a really cool person 